Today is part four of our series called God With Us, and with a number of visitors with us today, I'll just uh, show you this uh, little insert here. Um, this uh, will show you a little outline of the message today, and if you'd like to fill in the blank, that's fine, or if you just like to follow along visually, that might be a blessing for you too. This was originally set up to be a three-week series, but I begged and I pleaded with Pastor Ben, please let me draw this out one more week because there's, there, there's, there's another element to this God with us that, that I'd really like to, to touch on, and so he, for, for $50, he let me do it. So here we are today with, with our fourth week of, of God with us, and, and I get to wrap things up now and, and sort of tie it all together, which I really like because as, as the preacher then, I get to look at the first three weeks and see the neat progression that, that, we've, that we've come to. With this series, we've gone through a lot of tough stuff, the deep stuff. Trying to explain God with us is one that's, you know, we could spend a year on it. We, could sp- we spend our lives just trying to figure out and, and put our minds around it. Uh, but, but it's neat to see that the reason God did this, why he sent his son to be with us, God with us. And, and like I said, there's one last big thing that we haven't really touched on yet. But at the same time, it's this thing that we kind of talk about every single week. I'll confess to you, as a preacher, there have been a lot of times I've stood up in front of people like yourself, and my whole goal, or my main goal, was to simply get the people to heaven and then say amen. That's basically what every Christian message is about, right? We, we want to talk about how God has opened up the way to heaven. Amen. And it's not a bad thing. There's, there's no reason to, to apologize for wanting to be in heaven. Yet when you look at the way outsiders look at Christianity, that's often one of the things they pick apart the fastest. All Christians. You're sitting there with your head up in the clouds. In fact, there's this cliche that's been thrown around for quite a while. Christians are so focused on heavenly things that they're of no earthly good. You're so focused on things that that are up there, you know, far away, that you're you're completely losing focus on what's in front of you. So here's what my goal is for today. I'll be up front with you. What my goal is, I don't just want to send you out these doors today and, and, and you're saying, oh good, I get to be in heaven Yay, which is great. But but the secondary thing is also to say, okay, we know we're going to heaven. Now, what does that mean for me right now? And by then, what, what, what we're going to see is it's not just, okay, this, this thing is, is grabbing our distraction away from temporary things, and it's just giving us this brief and momentary relax in our minds, but it's driving the way that we live right now. And to, to get things uh, rolling here, we're going to look at a section from Revelation chapter 21, and you may know this, Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And he wrote it while he was imprisoned. This was a vision God gave him while he was imprisoned on an an island. And this is going to come in in a little bit. But you know, being imprisoned on an island, not only is it hard to escape, but it's very hard for people to come visit you. So how do you think John was was dealing with this? You know, lonely um, and, and maybe discouraged. And it's in this setting that that God gives him a vision of things that haven't happened yet. And I want to set the stage a little bit more before we open into it. Um, Leading up to uh, Revelation 21, God is giving John a vision of 
the last days of this world's existence. Okay, it's leading up to judgment day. And John sees all these things happening right up to the very thing that, that we have said. Judgment day happens. God separates those who are wicked from those who have been forgiven in Christ. He separates them. And now in Revelation 21, eternity starts to happen. Okay, the new eternal life begins. And John sees how it starts. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John speaking. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. The first thing I wanted to do is I think for for me and for a lot of us, our heads are often in the clouds when we think about heaven. What does heaven look like? Clouds and rainbows, harps and halos. That, those are my first four things that come to mind. Uh, clouds and, and, and rainbows, harps and halos. And you, you think about heaven. I don't know where that picture comes from because I don't think it comes from the Bible. When John is given a vision of eternal life, he doesn't see clouds. He sees ground. And he doesn't see harps and halos. He sees the sky in fr- above him. You know, he sees a new earth. He sees a new sky above him. He says the other things have, have gone away. What's the first thing he notices, by the way? There's no sea. For a guy stuck on a, on a prison, imprisoned island, that would have been something significant. There's nothing separating people anymore. Now, I want to pause right away because when you read the book of Revelation, obviously you know that this is a vision And God uses a lot of symbolism to describe what we can't see. So you look at a section like this, you might be thinking, okay, is this just symbolism? Is God telling me that he's going to give me a fresh start on life? But here's the other thing about Revelation. When when God reveals all these things, here's kind of a general rule of thumb. In the book of Revelation, God doesn't teach anything new. Uh, The only thing he does is he reveals things in the future using using different words and different pictures. Um, so when we look at this f- first verse, okay, you're thinking eternal life. You know, is this heaven? Is this, is this a cloud? What is it? Uh, John is describing something where he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And in fact, this has come up before in the Bible. Peter wrote about this. God gave Peter some words to express, again, what's going to happen when eternal life starts. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, this is what he says. He's talking a lot about false teachers and the end of times. And this, then he says this. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. A new heavens, new sky, new earth, new ground. I know this is the first Sunday after Christmas, and maybe, maybe you came to church for the first time in a while on Christmas. You said, all right, well, I'll give it another shot on Sunday and see what happens. But I think Christians are kind of weird. You read stuff like this, and you're like, yep, they're weird. <laughs> well, what is this stuff we're talking about here? You know, a new earth, 
new sky, a new creation? What, what's going on here? Or maybe when, when people ask you as a Christian, you know, what, what's heaven going to be like or what's heaven all about? What do you answer them? It'll be good. And maybe we don't, don't want to say too much more than that because when, when you look at some of these things, it's like, how do you explain this? How do you verbalize this in a soft way that doesn't scare people away? Or maybe the question you have is, why does God want to do this? Why does he want to make a new heavens? Why does he want to make a new earth? Why, why does he need to do it in the first place? And our first fill-in for today will help us answer that. The first fill-in on your sheet here. God gets our head out of the clouds. He says, look, look around you. This is what's going to change. When creation was ruined, God knew it would have to be redone. He knew his creation would have to be redone. And here's why. When Adam and Eve brought disobedience into the world, they didn't just ruin themselves. They ruined the very fabric of creation. Now death and and decay would, would affect everything. And this was no longer the good creation that God had made. There's an easy way to handle that, right? Destroy everything. Annihilate everything. Lay everything bare again and start from scratch. And that would have been a very easy thing for God to do with rocks and dirt. Right? Zap a rock. Bam. Gone. Let there be another rock. And it appears. Problem solved. Same thing with the trees and animals. Zap, get them all, get rid of them all. Let there be new trees, let there be new animals. And there they are, problem solved. But when it came to mankind, things were a little trickier. If God did that to Adam and Eve, it's not just that he's zapping them away into non-existence, but he created them in his image. And one of the things that means is that they were created with an eternal soul. So if he says, zap, you're gone, he's not just obliterating them, getting rid of them. He's saying to them, you are going to be away from my presence forever. And we're about to look at a section here where where God does have to do that. But that's not what he wanted to do. Here, here's, here's an interesting thing, and, and if this is one thing you take home with you today, that's great. Uh, the interesting thing is that when God saw his creation ruined, he knew it would have to be redone, but he chose to wait so that he could salvage and save the thing he loved the most. When his creation was ruined, he chose to wait so he could salvage and save the thing that he loved the most, you. You. Now, there are parts of Revelation 21 that I really wish I could just chop out. Actually, just one part. And again, this is, I guess this is preacher confession day. I'll, I'll confess to you that as I was getting ready to, you know, get this message ready, I was really thinking about just doing chapter 21 verses 1 through 7 and just stopping it right there. Because verse 8 gives us the other side or the alternative to heaven. And what we see, it's, it's not necessarily pleasant, but as, as, I, as, as we talk about this you know, eternal life and as we talk about heaven, I think the fair thing to do is simply let God speak about the other place too. Verse 8 says this, But the cowardly, 
The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. That's not an exhaustive list, by the way. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The first death is when you die, we have a funeral, we lay your body to rest. That's the first death. The second death is this one, eternal death, eternal separation from God. And I want to put this list of things up here. There's eight things that he lists, eight, eight kinds of people. Not an exhaustive list, but it gives you a, a, a chance to see what kinds of people will not be in God's eternal life. And what do you think when you look at this list? Here's what I think. I think I'm good on that one, pretty good on that one, not sure about that one. And, and as I look through them, I start to wonder, am I the kind of person that God wants to be in his new creation? And very quickly, I begin to doubt and wonder and worry, you know, am I good enough to be there? And this is something very natural. As you look at the book of Revelation, or any, any book for that matter, the Bible, you will naturally wonder, am I good enough? God had to be very choosy here. Oh, quick story about my wife and me. Um, you know how some couples, you, you have these opposite preferences that kind of con- conflict with each other? You know, a huge one that I just argue with with my wife about a lot, is, that's a joke, um, it's doing dishes. How you do dishes, the right way to wash dishes in the sink. Okay? I'm, I'm kind of the um, compulsive, obsessive compulsive one with that. For me, there's one right way to wash dishes, and that is to wash them twice. Here's what I do. So you get this pan that's got all the sticky stuff in it. I have to put it in the sink. I have to scrub it out. I have to get it clean. I put it on the counter. Then I fill up the sink with water, and I wash it again. Okay? Because I need clean water to make clean dishes. I think my wife, Amy, she's more the realistic type. She's like, why do you wash it twice? Just let me do it. And it's it's this big argument, right? (laughs) There's bigger arguments. I won't share those with you, though. Um, There's a right way to wash the dishes. Get them clean. Get them right. Now, when God is looking at his new creation, he says there has to be only things that are clean in there. What good would it be to make everything new again, to make it all perfect again, very good, and then put something old in there? Put something dirty in there. Put something wicked in there. It would just destroy the very fabric all over again. So when God picks what he lets into his new creation, he has to be very picky. He has to make a list like this. Now let's turn the corner real quickly. When you look at a list like this in verse 8, you think to yourself, I don't know. I don't know if I'm clean enough. I don't know if I'm I'm pure enough or holy enough. Verse 7 is the opposite to this. Verse 7 tells you the kinds of people that will make it in. And it's not what you would expect. He doesn't go through a big long list and say, only those who are pure, only those who haven't murdered, only those who, you know, it doesn't doesn't say the opposite. It just gives you one criteria, one thing. Verse 7. He who overcomes. Verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, this new creation. And I will be his God and he will be my son. He who overcomes. That yellow word, overcomes. Um, It could also be translated conquer. He who conquers. He who overcomes what? He who conquers what? 
the, this Greek word, uh, nike, it appears a few other places in the, in the New Testament. And if, when I use that word conquer, maybe if you knew some of your New Testament by memory, maybe, maybe it sparked to life somewhere else where that word is used. Paul used that word, conquer. Same Greek word, too. Uh, Paul was talking about all the things that Christians struggle with in the world, and he was even talking about, about persecution to the point of death. And he said, you know, what, what can cause us to fall away from God? What can tear us away from God? And Paul's going through this big, long list of things, and he says, no, 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 no. In all of these things, you aren't just conquerors. You don't just overcome. He says, you are more than conquerors through Christ. You have more than overcome it all through Christ. And so here's the one criteria, and this is something I really want to drive home with you because I don't want there to be any worry or any doubt as you're walking out these doors today. You know, is there a place for me in heaven? God tells you, you are more than conquerors. You are more than overcoming. You have that in Christ. You say, I, I don't know if there's a place for me in this new creation. I don't want to ruin it all again. I don't want to be the guy that makes it you know, bad for everyone else. God says, don't worry about that. You have overcome all that because Christ has done it for you. The beauty of God with us, you know, we, we just celebrated this at Christmas. God with us came to make this happen. He came to make this true that he has given you victory, that he has defeated sin and death for you, and that you stand as a child of God. Don't ever wonder about this, verse 7. Don't ever wonder about it. You are more than conquerors in Christ. Uh, fill in number two. Old inhabitants have no place in a new creation, which is exactly why God made you new. Old inhabitants have no place in a new creation, which is exactly why he made you new. New. Um, so far we've hit three verses here in Revelation 21. The rest of the verses all talk about one thing. When you look at them, and this might be surprising to you, uh, the, the thing that they all talk about isn't just about God or about his heaven, but really the focus of the rest of these verses is you. 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 When God gave John this vision of heaven and the things to come, there was one thing that John saw more than anything else. You. He saw a picture of the eternal you. What you will look like. What you will be doing in heaven. And in the rest of these verses, we're going to take a moment just to, to, to soak in some of what's happening here. Uh, let's look at verse 2 real quickly. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I kind of spilled the beans already, but this verse 2 is talking about you. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is, is one that's often used symbolically in Revelation to refer to God's people, his church, to, to you. And in the rest of these verses, he's really uh, talking about the way that you are like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. In fact, I, I encourage you sometime this week or even today, read through Revelation 21 because th there's a lot of cool ways that God symbolizes how you are going to look eternally. Um, it goes on into verses 9 and 10. Um, they're not on the screen or anything. Um, but he's basically telling John, John, come here, come here. 
I'm going to show you something. He says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he goes on to say how it shone with the glory of God and it was like a brilliant gems and jewels. And he describes it in ways that are unimaginable. Don't doubt that eternal life is fitting for you because God made you fitting for eternal life. He prepared you for it. He made you ready for it. And maybe before we formally put that down for point number three, uh, maybe just to share a quick picture with you. Um, we, we had some, some people walking through our building a week or two ago. They're, they're building their own church out in Farmington, and so they were getting some ideas from this one here. And um, I was sort of showing them around the back, and they said, oh, this room, this could be used for the bride when she's getting ready, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you could use it for that. We use it for children's ministry too. But yeah, it can be the, what do you call that room, by the way? The, the get ready room? The bride get ready room? Anyway, so yeah, you could use this as a bride get ready room. Sure, yeah. You look at that room, and, you know, there's no other place that the bride would rather be on the day of her wedding. Hopefully, there's no other place she would rather be. But you, know, you get a bride that's happy to get married. There's no other place she would rather be than in her get-ready room because she has everything that she needs there. She has her water. She has her bridesmaid. She has her dress. She has food. She has makeup. You know, everything that she needs is in that get-ready room. And as long as she's there, she's safe. She's ready. She's being prepared for what's about to happen. But when the wedding comes... She's going to be called out of that room, and she's going to be ready to meet her groom. That's how uh, God is, is describing what we often view as the clouds in the sky, the heaven place. It's, it's our get-ready room for eternal life. There's no other place we'd rather be. We have everything that we need there. We're safe. We, we're, we're happy. But there will come a day when things will be ready. And God will say, all right, it's time for my bride to come down and be with me forever. Fill in number three. God prepared his church as the perfect city for him to dwell in. You're the perfect match for him because of how he's prepared you in Christ. Now, sometimes I get curious about things, and so I, I look them up and research them a little bit. One time I got curious about what lottery winners do after they win hundreds of millions of dollars. What would you do? One of the things they do is they move into really fancy houses in really fancy upscale neighborhoods. And I was reading a blog by one of the lottery winners, and she went on to describe how they moved into their new neighborhood, and they threw these great big block parties, and they invited all their neighbors, and nobody ever showed up. Not a single neighbor. She went on to describe that the reason nobody showed up is because everyone knew that they had lots of money, but they did not earn it. And so they didn't really belong in this neighborhood to begin with. They were, they were kind of shunned. Do you ever wonder if that's what eternal life's going to be like for you? You know, the apostles, they're having their block party and they don't invite you. Or, you know, what are you doing here? They let you in? Oh, my goodness. They really set the standards low now. You know, are you going to be that awkward person in, in, in heaven? Or when God creates his new heaven, his new world, are you, are you going to be belonging there? 
the rest of the verses we're going to go through quickly demonstrate to you and to me that you're not just a lottery neighbor in heaven. You're not the awkward, the outcast, the person who doesn't belong. We're all going to be the same. And, and God's going to describe that here for us in verse 3 and through 6. This is John describing what he sees. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That word dwelling reinforces that this big Jerusalem coming down, that's not his palace that keeps him separated from us. But that word dwelling simply means tenting. He's dwelling right among with us, in his city, with his city, which is you and me. And how could we not, you know, look at, look at a verse like this, verse 3. God himself will be with them forever. He will be their God. Verse 4 continues the description. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more, now he has a list, no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's a pretty awesome picture of a new heavens and a new earth. All that we know is the old order of things. And Maybe it's at this point that John is starting to say, what? And you and I are starting to think, what? How, how can he say this? How can he promise this? And maybe going back to the introduction, is this just God trying to get our heads up in the clouds so that we forget about all the troubles we're having here on earth? Is this just him distracting us, saying that there's some great place waiting for us? Who is he to say this will happen? He tells us who he is. Verse 5, he who was seated on the, seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. I am making everything new. Then he said, write it down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Reminds me of something Job said. We had read a a section from him. (laughs) At one of his high points, he was saying, Oh, I wish I had something to engrave this in because I know who God is. Now God is saying to John, This is your chance. There's no reason to doubt me. Write it down. Write it down because this is something that's true. This is going to happen. Okay, so it's kind of a challenge. You'll write it down, test me in this, see if it's going to happen. But we're still thinking, yeah, but how can this happen? Why can you say with such certainty that you can fix all of this old order of things? Who are you to promise such a thing? And verse 6 is going to close us out today. He said to me, it's done. You know, we, we often view these things, oh, it's going to happen, or maybe it'll happen, or God's trying to guide it to happen. God says, no, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. You know, some of the people that you trust and you love the most are the people that have been with you since the beginnings. You know, uh, grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, people who have known you since you were little. God says, I I didn't just know you since you were little. I, I am the beginning. And similarly, you know, you trust people who've been around a long time to see, envision the future or see what's coming up ahead. God says, no, I don't just see what's coming ahead. I am the end. 
is one more thing to blow you away about God. He's not inside of our creation. He's not inside of time. He can stand outside of all of it and be at the beginning. He can be at the end. And to him, it's all done. And all he has to do is give us some words and some pictures to help us see what he sees. That's what Revelation 21 is for. The Alpha and the Omega, looking at everything, says, this is what I see. I see me with you forever. Now let's, let's bridge this over into really applying this. Okay, what does this mean for me today? How can this vision of heaven not just keep my head up in the clouds? The, re- the rest of verse 6 helps us to bridge that gap. Next slide, please. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. My question to you is simply this. Are you thirsty? Have you had enough of the old order of things? Have you seen enough crying, enough pain, enough suffering, enough death? Are you thirsty for something new? A lot of times when, when we get to this time of year, maybe if you've been in church for a while, you know, we call this the season of Advent, or actually we just finished the season of Advent when Christmas came, but we, we look at a season of Advent and we say, okay, this is the season to, you summarize it in one word, prepare. Prepare, 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 prepare. Don't just prepare for Christmas. Prepare for, for, the, the, for Christ to come again, for this uh, second coming, for, for the new heavens and the new earth. Make sure you're prepared. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really struck me, you know, growing up and, and as a kid and even as an adult, when people tell me to prepare, all it does is make me feel bad that I'm not prepared. Ah, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I've done enough things to be prepared. And yeah, it is a biblical thing. God does tell us many times, be ready, be ready, be prepared. But when he shows you the big picture, he has a a different take on things. He doesn't say, now be ready for this. Be ready for, for, for the eternal life to begin. He doesn't say, be ready now. He just says, here it is. Fill in number four. Crave it. Crave the day Christ returns to be with us forever. Crave the day that this, new, or that, this, that this old order is done and the new order begins. Crave that day when death is no more. And, and to, to help you uh, this week figure out how to, how to uh, make this apply to your life, maybe one last picture with, with that bride who's in the get ready room. Uh, go back a couple weeks, a couple months before the wedding and that bride is doing all sorts of daydreaming about what's coming up. You know, at least that's what I hear. The bride does all the work. You know, guys just sort of show up. But she's dreaming about this day. She's thinking about it. She's envisioning it. And what would you say? If she's thinking about that wedding day so much, is she just useless in her everyday life? Here's what I think. I think the more she envisions it and the more she plant, the dreams about it, the more she's going to do the more she's going to think about what color might look best, the, the, the flowers that might look best, uh, the, the tuxedos that would look best. You know, she's constantly thinking and dreaming about things, and as she craves that day to come, she naturally stays very busy doing things to make it better. Uh, to, to close off, I wanted to, to read a phrase from C.S. Lewis. I printed it on a pink piece of paper so I wouldn't forget it. 
Uh, but he, he had a, a good way of thinking about this. You know, we had said that Christians are of no earthly good because they're always up in the clouds. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you read history, if you just look back at what, uh, the way things have been, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought most of the next. The ones who did the most for this world were the ones who thought most of the next. And here's why. Because as you envision the way things are going to be, you're going to crave it. And maybe you're going to start thinking about things. You know, as I think about that day, if that day came today, I really wished I would have done this first. And as you crave it, you're going to say, there's things that I can be doing yet. There's a lot of people that are going to be in heaven. And I want to help even more people overcome the things that they're going through so that they can be there with me too. There's going to be a lot of joys in heaven, and so as I work through my joylessness in life, I'm going to find ways to keep my eyes on Him. And and as we wrap this series up, the thing that we take home with us from this series is this, that God loved His creation not as much as He loved you. And that when it came to His plan and His design for, for making a way To make everything good again, he said, you know what? I'm going to wait to salvage and to save what I love before throwing everything away. Because God wanted to be with us forever. God wanted to be with you. And someday, that will be an eternal life that we get to begin together. Let's close off with a prayer.